Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So glad to have you worshiping us with us this morning. Uh, for those of you who are in the building, I welcome you. Those of you who are joining us online, we welcome you too. And uh, we are honoring mothers today. So if you are a mother, we honor you. If you have a mother, we honor your mother. Um, we're going to start our service with a song that uh, mothers really enjoy, Days of Elijah. For that matter, everybody enjoys Days of Elijah. So we're going to get our service started with that. So if you're able, please stand and let's worship our God today.
I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you this morning as we celebrate Mother's Day. So if you are here, you're a mother, we do want to extend a happy Mother's Day to you. And on your way out, you'll see there are flowers on the back table. On your way out, I invite you to grab one of those on your way out. It's kind of a token of our celebration of, of motherhood. So if you're new or you're visiting, um, in the seat back in front of you, there's a little card. If you want to pass on any information about yourself to us, give us your name, information. We'd love to just kind of know about you and uh, be able to touch base with you. So there's a card there for you to do that. You can drop it in the offering boxes that are on the back wall on your way out. Along with that, if you want to give this morning, like if you're a regular attender here and want to contribute to what we're doing here at the church, you can give your offering in boxes on the back wall on your way out, or you can give online. If you're, if you're visiting or you're, you're new here, please know that we don't want or don't expect you to give. We want this service to be a gift to you, but if you're a regular attender, remember, that's what, those are the ways you can do that. A couple, couple of announcements. Um, in your bulletin, you see on the back or on the, on the inside, there's a couple events coming up involving kids that need or we're looking for volunteer for. One is VBS, right? so it's an opportunity to really bless the families of this church by putting on a, a great program and families of the community, right? to put on a, a great program for our kids that's fun and also teaches them about God. So if you want to sign up for that, there's a sign-up sheet downstairs, or you can talk to Sherilyn and she'll be happy to connect you with a place to serve. Similarly, like we have our fun club carnival coming up soon that we could use volunteer to help run games for and so if you are interested in that you can talk to, to Ann she can plug you in with that so again it's good to be with you this morning as we celebrate both Mother's Day and all that God has done for us will you pray with me Father we we come and we, we thank you this morning for 
for mothers and the way you've worked and you've given them unique roles in each of our lives to be involved in our lives, the way you've gifted mothers to raise children, all that you do through them, you give them a a weighty and an important task and you've gifted them to us to do that and to raise you for, for mothers. We just thank you for the work of people throughout this church who are in various ways serving and blessing people throughout our own church and throughout the community. We praise you for the work you're doing in the lives of people to, to draw them to yourself. We thank you for this opportunity to gather here and to praise you and to bring and glory to your name and to sing praises to you. We just pray that as we come this morning, as we sing and as we hear your word, that you would you would work in each of our hearts to to draw us closer to you, to to reveal yourselves to us and to change us more and more into the image of your Son. We just pray for the work you're doing throughout the world this morning and at all times that you would bring glory uh, to your name through churches and different ministries that are working throughout the world this morning. God, would you right now calm and work in our hearts to focus on you that we could bring glory to your name this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue the worship and song. And I give you permission to stay seated, but if you feel like you want to stand, I give you permission for that too.
may be seated. If you're dedicating a child this morning, I'd invite you to, to come forward for that. So we have this, this opportunity to, to dedicate um, several children this morning um, from our church family that we are, we're excited to do. Right? And so in, in Psalm 78, the psalmist is addressing the people of Israel. He says this, he says, We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. So a couple, a couple things that stand out to me from that. One, like he's, he's talked about teaching the next generation about God, but he does it in a way that it's not just a set of rules, it's not just a set of facts, but we've told the next generation about God, it's talking about the wonderful and the praiseworthy things that God has done. Teaching the next generation involves talking about how great a God God is. And then second, he sees the task of telling that next generation as a, a dual role, one with the congregation and one for the parents. He says, the dressing the congregation, when he says, which he commanded to our ancestors to teach their children. Right? There's a role for parents and there's a role for the congregation to play in helping children learn about God. And so we're excited this morning that we can come together, we can partner together to, as a congregation, right, promise these families that we're going to walk beside them as they seek to raise these children to know the wondrous truth of God. These parents can also stand before us and promise to do what they can to, to stand before God. So in a minute, I'm going to, I'm going to lead us as a congregation and I'm going to ask you a few questions about promises you can make to these parents that they seek to raise their children to know God. And then Pastor Ian will address us as parents as we're one of the families too. Right? So Pastor Ian will ask, us as parents, a couple of questions about raising our child to know God, and then I will close up by, by praying for, for these families. And so, on the screen, you'll see a couple of questions that I'm about to ask you, and after each one, I will just invite you to respond, we do. So, do you promise, congregation, to support these parents with your prayers as they seek to fulfill their responsibilities to their child? And do you promise to assist these parents by providing encouragement, counsel, and help as they seek to raise their child to know and love Jesus? And do you promise to receive these children in love, to pray for them, help instruct them in the faith, and encourage them? So I have a couple of questions for parents, and this might be my favorite Sunday so far. (laughs) Do you recognize your child as a gift of God and give thanks for God's blessing? We do. Do you dedicate this child to the Lord who gave him or her to you? We do. Do you promise that with God's help and guidance, you will undertake to lead this child to trust Jesus as Savior and to serve him? As Lord. We do. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the children, for the family, for their desire to see their children know and love Jesus, to, 
know and love what a great and wondrous and mighty God you are. We pray for these parents that you would be with them, that you would guide them, that you would give them wisdom as they seek to raise these children in that way. And we pray for us as a church that you would give us wisdom and guidance to know how to come alongside and to support these parents and these families and to encourage them and to help them on their way as they seek to raise their child to know and love Jesus. God, would you be at work in a mighty way to do that? God, as as parents, we recognize that our children are a gift from you. We pray that we would trust you with them as they grow and mature in their lives. You would, you would work in a mighty way in each of these children to raise them, to live lives that honor you, that bring glory to your name. We entrust them to you, knowing that you are a good God who loves them and who gave them to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On your way down, we have a, a gift for you, a, a little, hopefully, tool to help you um, begin that quest of helping your children to know the great glories of God. Just a little gift for you. So we'll give one to you on your way down, and then you can head on back to your seat. Continue our worship uh, in song. We're going to celebrate communion, remembering the Lord's Supper, specifically his, his death on a cross in our place. And so we're going to sing together, You are my King, and we'll hear the sermon, and we'll have communion after that.
do pray that in all that we do, whatever it is, we would recognize you as king and we would seek to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So ever since I kind of made this decision that I wanted to eventually be a pastor someday, like people have been very generous in offering advice and input into that. Much of that has been helpful and appreciated. Some of it, whatever, not so much. Right? But like, for the most part, it's been great. And like from professor in seminary right, to my senior pastor in my last job, to pastors around here who have reached out since I came here. Like, there's been no shortage of helpful input. Like, you just, like I said, usually it's great, often it's helpful. But sometimes there's a problem, right? Which is when I get, like, contradictory advice. Like, I've been told both, like, in your first year of ministry, like, just go in, don't change anything, just kind of keep the status quo and get a feel for the place. And I've been told, like, make sure you do something big in your first year of ministry. Right? Or no one had advice on what to do in your first year of ministry during a pandemic. <laughs> but that would have been a little more helpful. Right? Another place there's been contradictory advice is like, in how to handle holidays, like Mother's Day. Now, you have one end of the spectrum that would say, like, look, it's not Christmas, it's not Easter, it's not in the Bible, so we're not really going to make a big deal out of it. Then you have another end of the spectrum that says, like, look, people just want to come to church on Mother's Day, want to hear a cliche, feel-good sermon. Like, just give them what they expect. Give them a nice, uplifting message about moms. That'd be great. But both of those options make me a little uncomfortable. Like, on the one hand, I think it's good and it's right to honor mom for the God-given role they fulfill in our lives. On the other hand, I think a lot of, a lot of Mother's Day sermons like, fall short in at least two ways. One, like they're directed to a small portion of the congregation, right? either mothers or people who have good, healthy relationships with their mothers. And also, they're like usually overly cheery and feel-good and celebratory. But motherhood is not always cheery and feel good. I know this because one, like I parent alongside a mom, and two, like a mom had to raise me. <laughs> and like neither of those is an easy task. And in fact, nothing nothing increases your chances of experiencing sorrow like, quite like having a child. Because not only now can bad things and hard things happen to you, but now they can happen to a child who you love more deeply than you love yourself. And especially if they get older and you can't influence every decision they make and they start making choices that cause them pain and hardship and you can't always protect them from that. That can lead to hard times. Some of you here have probably lost children, or some have children who have wandered away from the faith, or you're going through a very hard time relationally with a child. Like some of you may desperately want to have kids, but are unable to have them. 
The road of being a mother is often paved with grief. So to stand up here and preach a, a Mother's Day sermon that neglects that fact seems trite. And like, likewise, some of you have lost your own mother. You have a difficult relationship with your mother. And I don't want to be insensitive to that either by preaching an overly cheery sermon. I don't want to preach a sermon that has nothing to say to those of you who aren't moms. And so here's what I want this morning. Here's my goal for this morning. I want to celebrate moms, yes, totally, absolutely, for carrying out the role God gave them. We want to encourage moms that they seek to carry out that role. We want to celebrate motherhood done rightly. We also want to acknowledge that often trials come with motherhood. We want to be sensitive to the fact that for some of you, like Mother's Day, today is not a day that feels all that celebratory. That maybe today is really a day of hardship and mourning for you. So my hope this morning is to preach a sermon that honors and encourages mothers in the highs and the lows of that role. And preach a sermon that has something to say to all of us, regardless of our life circumstances. And to do that, we're going to start a series through the book of Ruth this morning. A story about, really, about two mothers. One woman who's a mother from the very beginning, and one who becomes a, an important mother later on. And so the two women are Naomi and Ruth. And so we're going to spend the next four weeks, the rest of May, walking through this book. We're going to start in chapter 1 this morning, and what I want us to see this morning in particular is that Naomi's motherhood, like from being, for Naomi, being a mom has left her, like in her own words, bitter and empty. And like perhaps some of you can relate to that this morning. But what I want us to see is that God was at work in the midst of her bitterness and her emptiness to bring about good things for Naomi, and to bring glory to his name. So with that in mind, let's look at Ruth chapter 1 together. So we're going to be in Ruth 1. I want you to turn there in your Bible if you have one. Starting in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. We need to pause right there for just one second because that one verse, that's really the whole stage for this whole book. So if you have your Bible open, you have the book of Ruth up, if you look right to the left, or maybe you have to flip back a page depending on how your Bible is laid out. Right? The next page before Ruth is the end of the book of Judges. So the book of Ruth happens at the same time as the book of Judges. And the book of Judges ends with these words. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That pretty much sums up what it was like to live in Israel during the time of Ruth. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no fear of God. Things were dark in Israel during that time. So this book starts from the very beginning showing us right, the failure of Israel. And this true, like the book of Judges has this kind of cycle of highs and lows. 
So this, the people would start out being disobedient, not obeying God, and so God would punish them. And the people would cry out to God for rescue from their punishment, and God would send a rescuer or a judge who would save them and things would be good for a while. But then because things were good, the people would get content and self-satisfied, and they would start to be disobedient, and the cycle would start all over again. So there's some good moments in the book of Judges, but by and large, most of Judges is a dark time. And we can be confident that the book of Ruth starts during one of those dark, disobedient times, because the first one tells us there's famine in the land. And often, right, famine is one of God's means of judging his people throughout the Bible. One writer says this about the time of the Judges. He says, it was an era of frightful social and religious chaos. The book of Judges teems with violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil war. So that's the, that's the world that the book of Ruth takes place in. Not a great time to live in Israel. Things are bad for most people. And the author of Ruth like, zooms in and focuses in on this one family and how they live out their life in the midst of that trouble. The, book of, the author of Ruth wants us to see that, that even in the midst of sinfulness and rebellion, God still loves his people. God is still working out his plan to save them. And to help us see that he zooms in on this family of a man named Elimelech and a woman named Naomi. As we continue to read, we read this. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab and lived there. There's a couple ironies in in these verses that we don't see because we don't don't know Hebrew. But one is that Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. So this family from Bethlehem, from the house of bread, is forced to flee because there's no bread. Because there's famine. There's irony there. And second, Elimelech means my God is king. But instead of staying and trusting his God who is king to provide for him, he embodies the spirit of the era of the judges and does what is right in his own eyes. And he flees God's promised land. Now, the the passage isn't totally clear. Like, it's possible. Like, things are just so bad, he had no choice but to flee. He had to go find food somewhere. But he certainly didn't have to go to Moab. In fact, that's the last place he should have gone. That the Moabites did not have a good relationship with the people of Israel. Like they, they originated out of an incestuous relationship with Lot and his older daughter. The Moabite king, Balak, right, he had hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. Right, the talking donkey story. Right, and then like the women of Moab had been a stumbling block for the Israelites. That he had, they had re- seduced men to worship false gods. 
It's a lot, it's clear that the Israelites, because of these things, should have nothing to do with Moab. Here's how Deuteronomy 23 puts it. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come out to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out from Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pithor in Aram Naharim, to pronounce a curse on you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So here's this man whose name is, My God is King. And he's fleeing God's promised land to go to the land of God's enemies. And he's doing that because his hometown, Bethlehem, the house of bread, literally has no bread. The irony is strong, and the irony shows us that things are not as they should be. Something is broken here. But things go from bad to worse in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And so in these couple of verses, Naomi, things for Naomi go from not great to downright miserable. There's an almost like brutal efficiency to the author's words here. Elimelech dies. Like then her two sons marry Moabite women. Right? So they're, they're not Israelite women, they're Moabites, and so that's not great, but like the one redeeming quality there might be, well, at least maybe I can have grandkids. But then ten years pass, and there's no sign of grandkids. So even that's not working out, and then them both sons die. Like there's this deep plight that Naomi must be feeling. And nothing is more important in Israel than to have your family name continue. And there's seemingly no hope of that for Naomi now. And she lives in this like patriarchal society where the wife is kind of dependent on the husband to take care of her. And if he dies or he's unable to take care of her, then the expectation is that... like. The sons, any sons would go on and take care of the widow. And if the sons aren't able to for whatever reason, then the expectation is she would go to her extended family to find support. But here's Naomi, who in the course of ten years has lost her husband, has lost both her sons, and is now living in a foreign land far from any extended family. She's in a truly desperate place. It's her her only course of action is to return to Israel and hope that someone will come to her aid. So we'll come back in a minute to look at all that takes place with Orpah and Ruth as Naomi decides to make that trip back to Israel. But I want to fast forward a little bit in the story just to, so you can hear from, your, from Naomi's own mouth how she feels about all that's taken place to her. Verses 19-21 through 21 of Ruth chapter 1 say this. So the two women went out until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman explained, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. 
Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. So Naomi right, means pleasant in Hebrew. Well, Mara means bitter. So she's saying, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Look clear in these verses. Naomi trusts, Naomi believes in the sovereignty of God, right, and the greatness and his ability to do all things. She is not trusting in his goodness. Motherhood, the loss of her children, her life circumstances have left her feeling broken and empty. Bitter. Like maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you believe in God, but as you look at your life and all you've gone through, like you're having a hard time seeing the goodness of God at play in your life. You're having a hard time believing that God has good things planned for you. If that's you this morning, I would just invite you to remember the end of this story. In the prepare email I sent out this week, I I encourage you, if you had time, like read through the whole book of Ruth in preparation. I think this is part of why. Because if you had come to Naomi at this point in the story, where she's feeling bitter and empty and angry, and you had told her how it would end, like I don't think she would have believed you. If you came to Naomi and said, like, look, I know both of your sons are dead. And I know you only have one remaining daughter line. It appears after no grandkid for 10 years, that she's barren. Like, I know that like, any hope of your and Elimelech's family line, family name continuing on seems hopeless. But then you told her, but you will have a grandson. And not only that, but your great-great-grandson will be the greatest king that Israel has ever had. She won't believe you, but that's what happens. God was up to good in Naomi's life, even when she couldn't see it. Even in her darkest moments, God was laying the foundation for blessing her and caring for her. The same thing is true for each of us. No matter how dark things may seem right now, or any given time, no matter how hard things may seem, no matter how bitter and empty you may feel. God is at work to bring about good purposes in your life. And His means of bringing about those good purposes may be unexpected. That was certainly the case with Naomi when God uses Ruth, a Moabite, as His means of blessing her. Let's look at what God does through Ruth. We're going to look at verses 6 through 18 for this. Starting in verse 6, we read, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. 
May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could be your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And that's just sound, right? Like, sound reasoning. How could Orpah and Ruth argue with that? Like, surely it's better for them to return to Moab, to return to their extended families, than to follow this hopeless widow to Israel. And that's what like, Orpah sees the logic. Right? So in verse 14 we read, And this, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. And if I'm Ruth in that spot, I'm doing the same thing. Like, let me wash my hands of this situation. Get out of here. Like, this woman has all kinds of problems. Let me get home to my family. See if I can make a fresh start. But that's not what Ruth does. The author says, but Ruth clung to her. Interesting, that word clung, right there in verse 14, it's the same word we find in Genesis when God institutes marriage. And he says, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave or cling right, to his wife. It's the same word. Verse 14 and verse 15. Naomi continues, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth the pride, some of the more famous words in the Bible, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. If you're, you're planning a wedding... And you like Google verses to use in a wedding. Like, verses 16 and 17 will probably show up at some point. Like, and in isolation, like those sound, those words sound like good words for a wedding. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. That's a beautiful statement of faithfulness and commitment. It sounds appropriate for a wedding. But I wonder, how many people, if they say those words, or if they hear those words read at their wedding, how many people realize those words are not from one spouse to another, but from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law? In this era when like, the internet comes up with seemingly new wedding trends every week, like, let me tell you what I don't envision becoming a popular wedding trend. 
I don't envision like the bride turning to her mother-in-law and making a vow like this becoming a cool new thing. That's not how it typically works. Nonetheless, these are words of incredible declaration or an incredible declaration of faithfulness from Ruth. They point to Ruth's faithfulness. Just think about for a minute, like, if you're Ruth, thinking about Naomi and her God, what you must know about Naomi's God up to this point. You would know that Naomi follows a God who, from Ruth's perspective, has led his people into famine, why she met Naomi in the first place, right? who allowed Naomi's husband and two of her sons to die, a God who did not allow Ruth to have a child, and now because of that, she's stuck with Naomi as this bitter, angry, empty woman for a mother-in-law. And now Naomi is urging Ruth to go back to her family, to find a new spouse, to make a fresh start. And if I'm Ruth, I'm doing that. I'm out. Like, get me out of this situation. There is no rational, earthly, human reason why Ruth shouldn't comply with Naomi's command to go back to her home. Following after Naomi makes no sense, except for the fact that God must have done some kind of work in her life to reveal that Naomi's God is the true God. And that she feels called to be faithful to Naomi and faithful to that God. As a daughter, her daughter-in-law, she feels compelled to remain faithful to her bitter, angry, empty mother-in-law. When they get to Israel, Naomi says, I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. If like, Ruth was standing there, can you imagine like, what those words must have sounded like? Like, empty? Like, what does that make me? Do I not count for anything? Yet Ruth remained faithful. Maybe you're here and you find yourself in a similar situation. You feel attached to someone that can be hard to deal with, be hard to care for. Like you're connected to someone who's angry or depressed. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's the other way around. It's a child. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a sibling. But you, you feel obligated, you feel connected, you feel attached to someone who's just hard to deal with. Someone who's going through a hard time, they're in a dark place. And like, you just want to scream, like, snap out of it. But they can't or they won't. It can be incredibly frustrating. Like, but Ruth models for us what it looks like to lovingly walk alongside that kind of person. She models for us what unconditional love and faithfulness look like. As we celebrate Mother's Day, some of you have moms or some of you have kids who are going through a time like this that makes it hard to celebrate with them. My encouragement for you for any of you who are walking with someone through a hard and dark time, is to look to Ruth, 
who displayed remarkable faithfulness to Naomi as she walked through that dark time. And again, like just as with Naomi, to remember the end of the story. At the end of the story, we see how God blesses Ruth for, his, for her faithfulness to Naomi. That because of her faithfulness to Naomi, she gets to become the great-grandmother of King David. She becomes one of two women to have a Bible book named after her. Certainly the only Moabite to have a Bible book named after her. There are times when it is undeniably hard to remain faithful to the challenging people in our lives. But in the moments, we must remember that God sees our faithfulness. God knows our trials. And he is at work to bring about good even in the midst of those hard times. And we see a a little hint of the way God is at work in verse 22 when we read, So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem at the barley harvest was beginning. And so this this verse, right, kind of serves as a summary of all that's taken place in chapter 1, and it sets the stage for the rest of the book. And that phrase, right, they arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. That, that phrase is a picture of the providence of God. And so the word providence isn't found in the Bible, but it's nonetheless a word that has been used throughout church history to communicate something about God. It can be a little hard to define, but kind of a simplified version is that God's providence is God's sovereignty plus his goodness. And to believe in God's providence is to believe that both God is sovereign, that he can do whatever he pleases, but more than that, that he is also good, that he uses his sovereignty purposefully for his glory and for the joy of his people. We said earlier, right, that Naomi, at the beginning of the chapter, she was believing God's sovereignty, but not his providence, not in his goodness. But this verse gives us a hint into God's providence in this book. And it does it by pointing in two directions. First, it points back to Israel and shows us that despite Israel's sin during the time of Judges, sin that caused there to be a famine in the land, that God did not give up on Israel. Even though Israel sinned time and time again, God did not wash his hands of Israel and say, I'm done with you. He gave them consequences for their sin, but he was always with them. And we see that here when there's yet again, once again, a plentiful harvest in the land of Israel. This verse also points forward. It's because of this barley harvest right, that Ruth meets Boaz. This is Boaz who, like, spoiler alert, she will eventually marry. And together they will have a son named Obed. And Obed will have a son named Jesse. And Jesse will have a son named David. And after many generations, another son will be born in that same line, and his name will be Jesus. And he will, Jesus will, like God, be faithful even when we live lives of sin 
like the people of Israel during the time of the judges. He will, like Ruth, be faithful to us when we are like Naomi, when we are bitter and empty and rebelling against God. Jesus walks with us. Jesus stays with us. Even when there's no rational reason why it would make any sense to stay with us. Even though there is no reason for him to come to us in the first place. We were sinful. We rejected God. We were his enemy. But Jesus came for us. He lived a perfect life on our behalf died on a cross in our place so that we could be made right with God. Chapter 1 of Ruth is all about God continuing to be at work even in dark times. And nowhere is that more clear than at the cross of Jesus. The Son of God dies. What could be darker than that? Yet God with that work in it to use it for good. Provide a way of salvation for each of us who would trust in Him. This is what we have a chance to remember when we take communion together. So we're going to, in a minute, take communion together. Before we do that, we're going to sing one more song to kind of help set our minds and our heart. And then following that song, I'm going to give us a few minutes to just quietly reflect. But to think back on all the dark times that God has walked with you through in the past. To remember how God has saved you through the work of Jesus. To confess any sin you want to bring to God this morning. And then after that time of reflection, we'll partake in communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of trials and hard times and difficulties, you are at work to bring about your good purposes. That even in saving us, you sent your Son to die on our behalf. But even in that dark time, you were still at work for our good purposes to provide a way for us to be saved from the penalty for our sins to be restored into a right relationship with you. So we praise you, we thank you that for all that you do for us. Help us to remember your faithfulness in dark times. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to prepare for communion. And we're going to sing a song. It's going to, you're going to, hopefully it will help you use the words of someone else to prepare your heart for what we're going to do. And um, and then we'll have communion. So let's worship together. Please stay seated.
as we celebrate communion, we take the body of Jesus who came through the line, ultimately, of Ruth, right, who was faithful to God. He lived a sinless, perfect life, and yet he died on our behalf. We remember as we partake of the bread, right? So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake. Father, we... Thank you for this tangible reminder of the way your son came and had his body broken and his blood poured out and he suffered for us. Not because there's anything worthy in us, but because of your great love for us. By placing our faith in him, All our sins can be forgiven. We can look forward to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth with you. We thank you for the way that through all history you've been at work to work out your plan for the universe in the lives of Naomi and Ruth, Boaz, on down, that you have been at work Bring about your good purposes that you are still at work to achieve your good purposes no matter how hard or dark things may seem for us at any given time. Would you help us to remember that in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, as we look to you and the hope you offer. In Jesus' name, amen. So may Christ dwell in your heart through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You are dismissed.